Over a thousand years before the birth of Christ, a woman named Mary stood on the far shore of the Sea of Reeds. In front of her, oppressors and slavers lay dead under the waves. Behind her was a newly birthed nation, a people called to be God's own priestly people, a light and blessing to the nations. On that shore, Mary, better known as Miriam, sang her song of triumph. Against the terrors that would have killed Israel in the womb, so to speak, God had acted decisively to bring Israel to new life. In our story today, we have another woman named Mary. And Luke indicates that this woman is a descendant of her namesake through her brother Aaron. She is a member of a priestly family, but clearly not a high-status one. After all, far from living a life of ease and comfort in Sephorus or Caesarea, she dwells in the tiny hamlet of Nazareth. And you can bet that in Nazareth, like all small towns, word got around quick. Indeed, after Gabriel's departure, uh, Gabriel's announcement, Mary leaves town to visit her cousin Elizabeth. No particular is re reason is given for her departure, although we can guess one. Perhaps it was a good idea to get out of town for a while. The journey to see her cousin, who was six months along in her own pregnancy with John, may have given Mary not only the chance to support Elizabeth, but also to gain some perspective on what Gabriel had told her. She, of all women, would give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. She, a denizen of a backwater village, she, of low to middling social status. She, engaged to, a, to be wed to a man who would be asked to raise a child that was not his. She would carry the immortal, infinite word within her mortal, finite self, in a pregnancy that to all appearances would be scandalous. That might require quite a bit of time to process. But Elizabeth's response upon seeing her cousin confirmed Gabriel's message. Filled with the Spirit, she exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Martin Luther describes this, as we just heard, in, as the first sermon on earth. Now, factually, that's not true. <laughs> it, it, Preaching was around before the time of Moses, and there are plenty of sermons in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy is one long farewell sermon from Moses. But it makes a kind of theological sense. Elizabeth, guided by the Spirit, sees the long promise of God's reign fulfilled in the barely pregnant young woman before her. Instead of in visions and dreams, she sees that fulfillment with her very eyes, a fulfillment longed for by the Old Testament prophets. Her own unborn child, John, leaps for joy upon hearing Mary's voice. They witness God acting decisively for God's people to bring them from their stillborn state into new life. God's action in Mary was even more decisive, more dramatic, more earth-shattering than God's actions at the sea. 
At the sea, God midwifed a nation. In Mary, God himself is born for the sake of God's beloved people, Israel, and through them, for the sake of the world. God himself takes on human Jewish flesh to rescue us from our patterns of violence and dominance, which have laid waste to our world since the days of the pharaohs. Instead, in Jesus and his mother, we see a different kind of power. A power not built on dominance, violence, subjugation, but built on vulnerability, on the lowly being raised up by God, on the mighty being brought down. Mary's song is the song of that kind of power. It is the power of the cross, the power of God's great reversal, the power of God's hiddenness in an unwed teenage mother, in a baby, in the Jewish people in the cross. That Mary's song is a song of hope. It's a hope that isn't longed for but already seen in Jesus Christ. And though Pharaoh's power, Caesar's power, still seems to be running things, those days are numbered. Christ's unlikely different kind of power puts an end to all sin all domination, all subjugation, all violence, and all death, and brings us to new life. Thanks be to God. Amen.